very good morning to you. Um, I'm glad to see some of you have never seen me before because that means there's a few old jokes I can tell and you'd never know, right? Um, look, it's great to be here, as Gideon and Catherine said, at the, the, the conference. Um, this, I've been basically coming to this church now regularly since the year or two into your inception. Uh, the first year I uh, came here to Christchurch to minister at Grace and Glory was in 2012, just after the, um, the significant earthquake, it was like the year after that, and so things were very raw here, and Rob and I came together, and uh, as Gideon and Catherine tell the story, I just was a tag along and said, I'd like to carry Rob's bags and make him coffee and make sure he's okay, because Glenda couldn't come with him, and uh, come along, and Gideon and Catherine said, we'd love you to share, take a session, the sleeping afternoon session, uh, and uh, yeah, do that one, and you can preach on the subject of this little book of yours that we've read called He Qualifies You. And so I did that that year, and essentially now I've just come back year after year, and uh, this was our 10th conference in a row, but it is great to uh, have consistent relationships over the years. We're in a season of our life where the last time we were with you was 2020. As I said, toilet paper was disappearing off the shelves and hand sanitizer was the whole fad. I got back into Australia and was locked into isolation and COVID began. That was when I was with you last, March 2020. The next year, God spoke to us about relocating and leaving the church that we had planted at 23 years of age and led to that stage for 19 years. The only place, a place that I grew up in, the town that where my roots are, a town where my wife's grandparents lived. It was a home away from home for her. We raised our kids there and God spoke to us about relocating to a whole nother space. And in 2022, we did exactly that. Uh, we transitioned uh, or had a succession plan with Caleb and Brooke taking on our role. And on our 20th birthday as a church, we were farewelled from the church that we'd planted. It looks something like this. I think we've got a photo of that. Uh, where we had a farewell, there are our kids and they all four kids decided to come with us. We thought we were looking for a three-bedroom house at Coffs Harbour where God told us to go, thinking, oh yeah, we're only going to have one kid soon. No, nah, they all wanted to come with us. Um, so we've really started a new life and I say that to say, part of that and hearing Matt's story at Grace and Glory this week, it seems to be there's a number of people around the world in ministry circles that that's happened to and part of that is forming new relationships and we're now plugged into a church in a movement that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, there's no way I think I'd ever be part of that church movement. And yet here we are walking with a group of people uh, that God has called us to serve and to walk with uh, as new relationships are being formed in a town that where we knew nobody. God called us to a place where we were not known and where we knew nobody. Say that to say, that's a good thing. It's an exciting thing to develop new relationships. And if we're called to be a people of influence, then that means growing in influence means growing in new relationships. It's par for the course. It's a good thing. But there's also nothing quite as satisfying, beautiful and content and fulfilling as having long-term relationships and sustaining relationships through the years. And certainly in ministry, it's a great thing to be able to hand over a church after 20 years and have people in that church that were there from day one is just a great story and a great testimony of community. And to be with you 13 years, to see Harmony's journey in that stage, to know that in that time, as happens, people come, people go, but that's life. This is just what happens. Things change. New faces, beautiful to see new faces, but also great to see that those of you who have been part of this church from day one, and for my part, I want to commend you. Those of you who have been part of this church for 10, 11, 12, 13 years, would you, thank you. 
thank you, thank you for sticking it out with Harmony, for sticking it out with Gideon and Catherine, which, you know, is not always easy. We understand that. (laughs) Because long-term relationships matter. And there's something about that testimony of, 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 of consistency that demonstrates what Jesus is like. Who's Jesus in the, the scripture, while God does say, I do a new thing. And there are times and seasons where, whoa, he's doing a new thing. He's also the same yesterday, today, and forever. And both those flexibilities. God spoke to us years ago about our church bayside and said, I've called you to be both a mountain and a fountain. A mountain, secure, st- solid, steady, and unchanging. People can rely on you because they know who you are. You're a mountain, but you're also a fountain. You're like the white, white water rafting. You know, you don't quite know what's going to happen next because there's always something fresh and something new and something spouting you're reliable and secure and steady but it's an adventure it's a wild ride it sounds like walking with Jesus to me you know what you're getting and you never know what's coming it's a bit like that okay so thank you for your consistency and being part of this church and it's great to still be walking with Gideon Catherine all these years well a few years back um, when Grace and Gloria had a bit of controversy around it Um, I started developing a real passion to teach people how to read the Bible properly. And this morning, uh, I'm going to be doing a teaching with you that some of you have heard. In fact, it's what Gideon and Catherine asked me to preach 13 years ago. They have asked me to preach that same message today. And it's not because an oldie is a goodie. It's because God's revelation is timeless. And truth is always good. The scripture is always good. The truth is always good to hear. But there's also a timeliness about prophetic truth. And Gideon and Catherine just thought, you know, where our church is at at the moment, that is a timeless word, but it's also timely. And I think it's right for our church to hear that again. And so it's like some of you today are going to get new lenses on where you see something in the scripture you've never seen before. And it's going to stir your love for Jesus and your passion for the scripture. Okay, so I'm really excited. I'm going to be doing that in a moment. But one of my great passions... I've got two preaching passions in my life. Number one is preaching Jesus. Okay, we proclaim Christ, Paul said, and Christ and him crucified. That is our message. But my other great preaching passion with my teacher hat on is to help people understand the Bible properly, to help people read the Bible properly, to help people understand what it means and know what to do with it in their life. And that whole process is called hermeneutics, the the, the art of how we go about handling the scripture. Because the Bible is a good thing. But it can hurt people if you don't use it properly. The word of God is good. It can be a blessing, but it can also hurt you if you don't handle it right, like fire. Okay, Fire is a good thing, but if you don't handle it properly, it'll burn you. The same thing that's meant to bless you can burn you if you don't handle it properly. The word of God must be handled well. Well, my message, and I've put this into a book that just came out last year, is simply this, you can handle it. You can handle the truth. And no matter how complex, complicated, convoluted and even uh, contradictory the Bible may seem at times, you've got what it takes to handle the scripture properly. And uh, so you can handle the truth. My book on that subject came out last year. Uh, The passion for that, as I said, came out of ministering here at at these times with you at Harmony. So you really have a part to play in this. It looks something like this. We've won at least three international awards since it came out in 2021. And my whole desire for this book, and if you see the formatting of it, is to have a mentoring conversation. It's to take something that can be quite technical and use very simple, plain language. And so that's why I'm on the front of the book, just sitting down, reading my Bible. I've come up with a couple of characters that I, that I speak to in the book called Tim and Tam. It's like Paul speaking to Timothy. 
Okay, Paul speaking to Timothy and saying, mate, here's how you handle the word of truth. And if you've got a female Timothy, well, her name's got to be Tam, right? Because it's Australian, so you've got Tim Tam. You know? That's the, whole, the, way the, whole, the way the whole thing works there. So that's kind of that. So we've got, so that's the sort of the vibe of the book. At the start of the book, we look about, what's the, what's the next slide? The start of the book, we look about choosing a Bible and how to read the Bible well and what Bibles you should read and, and that kind of thing. What's the next one? Uh, as we work through the Bible, we look at who the Bible is written to. How do you work out the order, the author and the audience? How do you actually know who the Bible's written to? Because while all the Bible's written for us, it's not all written to us. You can read Leviticus, and you should, and you'll learn from it, but it's not written to you. It was written to a certain people at a certain period of time. You need to know whose mail you're reading okay, to understand the Bible properly. You need to work out the audience. Um, in this part of the book, we look at correctly cutting the word of truth. And we also look at, at uh, in this part, uh, about the finding the most important thing in the Scripture, which is finding out what the Bible says about Jesus. Because ultimately the message of the scripture is about him and finding out who you are because of him. Who you are because of him. And as you look in the scripture, you will learn about yourself. That as you look in the scripture, you see Jesus and you see that he is in you. And you are in him. It's a powerful thing. And so we've got illustrations there just to make it fun. It's a really easy to read book and all going well. Your small groups next year will go through a video course on the book. So you read the book, watch videos, discuss it as a small group. Stay tuned for that. That's next year. Otherwise, you can handle the truth. Get a copy today. And that's my sales pitch. Are you ready? Open your Bibles if you have one to the book of Philippians and chapter 3. And uh, we're going to have a good time this morning. Dad, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And as Gideon said yesterday, your words are spirit and life. And there's no such thing as a spirit people or a word people. Your word is spirit. And so today we come, we hear your word and we thank you. It comes alive in us today. Your written words jumping off these pages and having its work in our life. We thank you and we submit our hearts to you. We are willing to learn today and we are willing, most importantly, to see Jesus and the wonder of his gospel in these pages. So I thank you that my heart is ready for the seed that you are going to deposit in me today. And everybody said... Amen. Let's go. Philippians and chapter 3, verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to preach the same thing to you again like I did 13 years ago. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again because it's actually a safeguard for you. Some things are just worth repeating. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Paul right now is about to describe two groups of people. Those who boast or have confidence in Jesus, who rejoice in in Jesus, who have confidence in Jesus, and those on the other hand who have confidence in the flesh. What does he mean by that? Well, we've got to keep reading. Who put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself have reasons for confidence. If anyone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have even more. 
After all, I was circumcised on the eighth day. The people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Stop right there. When Paul says there are people who can boast in the flesh, and he says, I could be one of them if I wanted to be, the first thing he says about what that means is, I could boast in my family upbringing. I was a Hebrew of Hebrew. I'm an Israelite. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Not his choice, obviously. It's just part of his family heritage, right? And I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. He had nothing to do with these. This was just how he was born. Paul is describing his pedigree. And if I wanted to, I could boast in my pedigree, boast in the flesh, boast in my pedigree. I could do that, but I don't. Keep reading. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. Woof. As for zeal, I persecuted heretics, the church. And as for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. Here's the second thing Paul means when he says boast in the flesh. It's not only boasting in my pedigree, Hebrew of Hebrews, born of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, I was an Israelite. It's also boasting in my piety, in my holiness, in my performance, because I could obey the law unlike you mob, and I was a Pharisee. I studied the law like no one else and I was so zealous I persecuted heretics even to death. That's how awesomely obedient I was to the law. Top marks to me, aren't I awesome? My pedigree and my performance are amazing. And if I wanted to boast in the flesh, I would boast in those two things, my pedigree and my performance. But, verse 7, whatever were gained to me, I now consider Loss because of Christ. For what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. In fact, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Those of you who grew up in the King James Version, you know the word there is not garbage in the King James. The word is, anybody tell me? Dung. I consider them dung. I won't tell you what the Australian version says, but it's not a pleasant word, and I won't say it in church. But the point is, I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and that I may be found where? In Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from my obedience to the law. No, no, no. But a righteousness that is through faith, In Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And he says in verse 10, for I want to know Christ. Very simple proposition. Two groups of people, those who boast in Jesus and those who boast in the flesh. If I wanted to, I could boast in the flesh, says Paul. And that means boasting in my pedigree and my performance. But now that I've met Jesus, I consider my pedigree and my performance as poo. The only thing that matters to me is that I am positioned in Christ. I am positioned in the perfect person of Jesus Christ and that is what matters to me and so I boast in him. Now the reasons that Paul could say these things were once gained to me, my pedigree and my performance, was because that's what the Bible taught him. Paul was not wrong in his previous life to boast in his pedigree and his performance because after all, he was a Hebrew. He had the Hebrew Bible. That's what the Bible taught him to do until Jesus came and a whole new era began where pedigree and performance don't matter. What matters is whether you are positioned in Jesus or not. That is the most important thing. 
Paul was not wrong because Paul understood the Hebrew Bible. He understood the Hebrew story and he understood that the Bible story is a story of covenant, of God's relationship with his people. Covenant is a word that we don't use all that often today, but it essentially means a contract, really. In in certain ways, there are differences, but whatever. It means a relational agreement. And essentially, as you read through the Bible story, from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, God has a number of covenants with his people. Some people say six, some people say seven. Eh, It's a little bit of debate around that. But what we do know is that there are three main covenants. And they are the covenants that are marked by three men. Abraham, Moses, and then Jesus. And my proposition is simply this. In the era of Abraham, God's people were blessed by him and had a relationship with God because they were Abraham's kids. The most important thing about you is that you were a descendant of Abraham. And if you were a descendant of Abraham, you were one of God's people and that's all you needed to be. Born of Abraham, boxes ticked, you qualify. When Moses came along, things changed. And now, it wasn't your pedigree that was enough. You had to have pedigree plus a measure of piety. You had to have pedigree plus performance. You had to obey God to a high standard to be counted worthy or deserving of his blessing. It's only when you obeyed that you qualify for God's blessing. And if you didn't obey, you qualify for God's curse. Then Jesus comes along. And in light of the work of Jesus, your pedigree and your performance mean nothing. Jesus fulfills these pictures. And all that matters is that you have faith in him. You are positioned in him and you boast about being in him. You no longer boast about your pedigree. You no longer boast about your performance. All you boast in and all you rejoice in is in Jesus Christ, the person and the work of Messiah. That is the story of the scripture in a nutshell that is the story we're going to look at today are you ready take us there the bible story in many ways the covenant story of god's people starts over here in genesis chapter 12 where god rocks up and he speaks to a guy called abram and he says basically this go to the land i'll show you leave your dad's house leave your nation And I will bless you. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And all of your generations will be blessed as you follow me. And Abraham, who's an Iraqi, a Chaldean, and who worships many different gods, hears that voice and begins a journey with God. He starts to follow that voice and he leaves his father's house. Now, it's not until a few chapters later, chapter 14, where he fights a battle. He's rescuing his little cousin Lot, got himself into trouble. Whole story there. And after that battle, a man comes out of nowhere, totally out of the blue, meets him in the Valley of the Kings. His name is Melchizedek, and he comes with bread and wine. And he says, Abram, do you know the name of the God that's blessing you? El Elyon is his name. He's the God of heaven and earth. And he is the one that is blessing you and has caused your enemies to be defeated before you. You see, the fascinating thing is when God spoke to to Abram back here in Genesis 12, God didn't introduce himself. He didn't say, hello, Abram, this is my name. How you going? I'm going to bless you. He just said, I will bless you. And so Abram, for two whole chapters, mind you, follows that voice not knowing which God it is that's talking to him. 
It's only until Melchizedek comes and with bread and wine and says, this is the God that's made a covenant with you. He is the great God over all gods. That is why in the next chapter, Genesis 15, God speaks to Abram again, introduces himself by name, says, I am your shield, your very great reward. I'm going to give you a son, etc., etc." And it is in that chapter that it says, Abram believed God and he became righteous. Abram entered into a right standing relationship with God because he knew the name of the God that was speaking to him. How many of you know the Bible says those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved? Abraham didn't know God's name until Melchizedek revealed it to him. He came as a priest, to reveal, a king, a royal priest, to reveal the name of God. And Abram, who had been walking with God, suddenly became in right relationship with him. And for some of you, that's your story. Because you came to Jesus. You heard Jesus' name. You submitted to him. A priest came to you. Maybe it was a preacher. Maybe it was a friend. It was someone who said, do you know that God's on your side? Do you know that God is with you? You accepted Jesus that day and then you looked over your shoulder and you were like, oh, guess what? God's actually been leading me for years. I just didn't know it was him. How many of you, is that your story? You're like, oh, actually, God was with me. Like, And it's only now. I'm in right relationship with him. That's why I often say to people, if you're here today and you don't follow Jesus or you don't believe in God, you may say you don't believe in God, but God believes in you. And you may not think you've got a relationship with God, but you probably do and you just don't know it. And hopefully today you take that extra step forward into more of a relationship with him because we'd love nothing more than for you to receive Jesus and become right in the sight of God. That is an awesome thing. That's what happened to Abraham. This is going to take so long. We're only 15 chapters into the Bible, right? In chapter 17, God comes to Abram and he says a couple of really weird things. He says, number one, I'm going to give you a new name, mate. I'm going to not not call you Abram anymore. You're going to be called Abraham because you're going to have a son, right? And this son of yours is going to have a son and a son and a son and a son and a son. And all those sons are going to be blessed because of you. In other words, the blessing that is on you is going to be for them. It is a perpetual blessing for the generation afterwards, you and your seed. He also says to Abram at that time, listen, I'm going to give you a sign of this covenant blessing that you're in. okay? And because it's for your sons, because it's sons that inherit the blessing of the dad, that's just how it worked back then, okay? I'm going to give you a sign. The sign is male circumcision. Now, male circumcision doesn't earn you God's blessing. You're already being blessed, Abraham. I'm already blessing you. But that sign, that circumcision will be a sign to you. It's the same word he used over here when the flood came, waters lifted, and God put a bow in the sky. Okay, it doesn't actually say rainbow in, the, in Genesis. It says bow. Uh, the, the prophetic picture there is a, a, a warrior that hangs up his bow because the war is over. And the bow's in the sky. Okay, That was free. So he hangs up the bow. And God says, that bow is a sign. A sign for you so that every time Noah's descendants looked at the bow, they were like, whew, the war is over. God's not going to judge us again. Okay, It was a reminder of what God had said. What was circumcision? Circumcision was a reminder of what God has said. So that all through the generations, Abram's boys, no matter where they were in life's journey, would see something permanently on their bodies Okay, that would remind them of who they were. I'm a son of Abraham. And because I'm a son of Abraham, God's going to bless me. He's going to bless those who bless me, curse those who curse me. God is with me today because I am a son of Abraham. What qualifies me to be blessed by El Elyon, God most high, the creator of the heavens and the earth? What 
What qualifies me is my pedigree. Abraham is my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather. That qualifies me. And faith joins with the promise and God's people walk in his blessing. And as you read the rest of Genesis, this is what happens. God blesses Abraham and blesses his descendants. And he doesn't bless them because they're well-behaved. Abram, Isaac and Jacob are absolute scumbags. Okay, they are not well behaved. They're not the kind of stories you read to your kids to go, let's learn a good moral story and look at Jacob. Okay, his name means deceiver, for goodness sake. He's an absolute, he's not a nice guy, right? He's not a nice guy. But God's not blessing them because of their behaviour. God's blessing them because they're Abram's kids. And he made a deal with Abraham that I'm going to bless your kids. And so no matter how poorly they behaved, I mean, Joseph at the end of Genesis is a shining light in this whole thing, right? But no matter how poorly they behaved, God blessed them and blessed them and blessed them. And even though hardship came upon them, because how many of you know, just being blessed by God doesn't mean that you'll never face a hard time. So even though they got enslaved by Egypt, God still favoured them in that time and their population grew. And we come to the book of Exodus now and God's people cry out because of their Egyptian slavery and God hears them. And God decides to hear, he hears the cry of his people and he says, I'm going to rescue them. Now, why did God rescue them? Well, he says to Moses later, the reason I decided to rescue my people is not because they were the biggest nation, not because they were the strongest nation. They weren't tithing. They weren't even worshipping God in Egypt. Do you know in Egypt, Joshua 24, 14, which is over there, Joshua says, when we were in Egypt, we used to worship the false gods of Egypt. They were still polytheists. They still worshipped other gods. They might have had some knowledge of El Elyon passed on to them from their great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers, but they were still polytheists. God didn't honour them because of their behaviour toward him. He honoured them because they were Abram's kids. And he says that, he says, because I was faithful to Abraham, I rescued my people out of Egypt. And that's why we have the story of the Passover lamb, the deliverance of God's people, where God's people would sit down, have a lamb and put blood over the sign, the posts of their home. And he says in that story, the same thing he said to Noah and the same thing he said to Abraham, he said, I want you to do this every year in the future, because this blood will be a sign for you. The sign was not for God. God didn't need to see blood because he'd somehow forgotten which one of his people lived in which house. God didn't need these boys over here to be circumcised in case he started to bless the wrong shepherd. Which one were you again? Oh, that one. Yeah, bless, you know. God didn't need the sign, but people need a sign. How many of you know God doesn't forget his promises, but often we do? And so he said, this will be a sign for you. Every year as your journey continues, you will remember how flippin' good I am and how I rescued you from Egypt when you did not deserve it. When you were worshipping false gods, I rescued my people from Egypt because you're Abraham's kids. That's who you are. You see, my friends, the blood of the Passover lamb, as important as it is, is not the blood of the Old Testament. It's not the blood of the Old Covenant. We haven't even got there yet. It was a sign that God blessed us because we're Abraham's kids. And so this is why when God's people come out of Egypt, it doesn't matter how badly they behave, it doesn't matter how bad their attitudes were, God kept blessing them, which is completely unfair. <laughs> but sometimes that's just what grace looks like. They come out of Egypt, 
they come to the border of the Red Sea and rather than trusting God and being grateful, they whinge, they whine and they complain. Why did you take us out of Egypt? You're just going to kill us, God. And God hears their whinging. And he opens the sea for them. They come out of the sea and after three days, they begin to get thirsty as they travel. And they whinge and they whine and they complain because the water is bitter. And God hears their whinging and he makes the water sweet for them. A couple of days later, the next chapter, I think it's Exodus 16, they start getting hungry because they're traveling. You get hungry when you travel, you get a bit hangry, right? And rather than going to God and asking nicely for food, oh, do you remember how good God's been to us all these years? Remember how good's God? Maybe we should ask God nicely for food because we're hungry. They don't ask him nicely. Do you know what they do? They whinge, they whine, they complain. And Moses gets really ticked off with them. I mean, he's starting to get, it's like most pastors, he's like, I'm over these people already. Right, okay, I'm done. I'm over, I'm over these people. And he gets angry. But it doesn't say that God got angry. You know what God did? He gave them food. He gave them fresh manna, even though they're winged. And this time he actually does a little test for them. He goes, all right, guys, let, let's give you a bit of a test. What I want you to do is I want you to go out six days and collect it, but not on the seventh. It will rain on the seventh, by the way, man. I don't want you, I don't, I don't want you to, uh, no, won't. Anyway, don't, don't collect it. I don't want you to go out on the seventh day. And what God's people do is they go out on the seventh day. They disobey God. They break the Sabbath. And even though the food that they had got stinky, because sometimes, well, most of the time, when we disobey God, it doesn't go well for us. But God didn't curse them. It was just a natural repercussion of not following God's wisdom. That's life, sweetheart, okay? Natural repercussion. But God doesn't curse them for breaking the Sabbath. Do you know what he does? On Sunday, he just sends new manner again. Monday, new manner again. The next day, new manner again. The next time, as they keep travelling, in chapter 17, they get to a place where again there's no water and again the people whinge and whine and complain. Moses hits the rock, the picture of Jesus, you all know that. Water pours out. And what happens there in Exodus 17 is profound and we don't understand it until you get to the book of Psalms and Hebrews. But at that place, at the place of the outpouring of the rock, God's people harden their heart toward God and they no longer... They say something slightly different. They don't just say, why did you take us out of Egypt? They say this, is God really with us or what? They begin to question God's character and they close, They begin to harden their hearts toward him, which is profound because it's in the next two chapters later in chapter 19, they come to a mountain called Sinai or Horeb. And they come to Horeb and God says to Moses, come up here, mate. Moses goes up the mountain. And he says, you've seen what I've done in Egypt. Your people have seen that. And I'm going to make my people a kingdom of priests if they obey everything I tell them to do. If they obey me. And Moses hears that and he comes down to the people. And he says, guess what, guys? Just been chatting with God. He's got a proposal for us. If we do everything he tells us to do, if we obey him, he'll bless us. But if we disobey him, he'll curse us. What do you reckon? And God's people said, Sounds good to us. As long as you deal with him and we don't have to because we can't handle the thundering. You go and talk to him again. So Moses is like, all right. He goes up the mountain. He talks with God and he comes down with the book of the covenant and he reads the book aloud to the people. These are the laws and the stipulations for my people. If you obey them, I'll bless you. And if you disobey them, I'll curse you. 
And the people said, okay, for the second time. Exodus 24, Moses now gets a bull, a couple of other animals, because that's how things roll. He kills them and he makes a sacrifice. And he takes the blood, a bit gross, excuse me visitors, come back again. But he (laughs) takes the blood of this bull and he starts to sprinkle it on people. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant. You're entering into a new arrangement with God now. It's not just a handshake deal. This is an actual serious life and death issue. You're entering into a covenant with God where he will bless you if you obey, but he will curse you if you disobey. And as they're sprinkling the blood, the people say, we will obey. (laughs) This is a group of people that a few chapters earlier could not even pick up bread properly. (laughs) And now they're saying... We'll base our whole relationship with God on our obedience. This is what's known as self-righteousness. Heart and heart toward the goodness of God, where unlike Abraham, I'm not just trusting that God's good and makes me righteous before him, and so I trust him. No, I trust myself. Thank you very much. And I'm going to base my relationship with God and whether he blesses me with not upon how good I am. I can't trust him, but I can trust myself because I'm awesome, right? So I'm going to base my relationship with God on that. For three times they say, we will do this, we will do this, we will obey, we will obey. Let everything be established in the presence of two or three witnesses. They said it three times. Moses sprinkles the blood and then he goes back up the mountain with 70 elders. And they see God, they have visions of him, and they have visions of him of an emerald sea and all that stuff, and he comes back down. Then he gets Joshua. He says, mate, come with me, Josh. They go back up the mountain, and they stop halfway, and God's glory comes on the mountain. And they're there for six days. Then on the seventh day, Moses says, I'm going to go up to the mountain on my own. And he goes right up the top, and he is there for 40 days and 40 nights, and God gives him the stone tablets what the heck are you talking about Mansbridge just do the maths with me he sprinkles blood he goes up and back with the elders that's two days worth of walking he goes up with Joshua for six days and on the seventh he's there for 40 so he's on the mountain 40 days plus seven plus two is 49 49 days pass since blood is shed and God puts the tablets in his hand it is now day 50 since the blood was shed and on that day day number 50 God says to his Moses while he's up here on the mountain God says your people down there are worshipping a golden calf and I'm gonna kill them and Moses holding the ten commandments says no (laughs) What are you talking about? I haven't been there for, what are you talking about? I didn't know that. And he says, God, you can't do that. You can't kill your people. What will all the nations say? You've just rescued them from Egypt. And by the way, they're children of Abraham. Don't you remember over here you said you blessed them? You can't now kill them. God says, fine. Watch what I'll do. Moses comes down the mountain, as you know, sees the people engaging in revelry, worshipping a golden calf. Aaron, his brother, was leading the whole thing. Okay, you leave your brother in charge while you go away. Good luck. <laughs> Never do church with family, right? Whatever. And um, <laughs> while the cat's away. And they're worshipping a golden calf. And, and a plague begins to come upon God's people. Moses, first man to break all Ten Commandments in one go, throws the... 
the, 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 the things down, breaks, breaks the Ten Commandments, okay? And he says, listen, those of you who are for the Lord, come to me. This is a day of reckoning now. And Aaron, his brother, who led the people into idol worship in his absence, said, I'm with you, bro. I'm with you, bro. And Moses said, great. You Levites, those of you who are associated with Aaron, I want you to get your swords out. And I want you to go through the camp and I want you to start to kill your cousins and your uncles and your aunties, men and women and children. And that day, Aaron took his sword. They ran through the camp and with their own swords, they killed their own family. Three thousand people died by the sword. They come back to Moses. They've got blood all over their gowns. They've got blood all over their swords. There's a slaughter that happened in the camp. And God said, see this guy, Aaron? He'd make a great priest. <laughs> he is a great representative of this new arrangement that we've got going, where he is willing to sin, lead people into sin, and as a hypocrite, Judge people for the very thing that he has just done. God doesn't say that. I'm reading that in. But doesn't that just reek of religion to you? This priesthood is not like the priesthood of Melchizedek, who says God's blessing you, God's for you, God's on your side, God's with you. My job as a priest is to reveal the name and nature of God to people that God already loves and is blessing. Levi, over here, Aaron, was led people into idol worship and then judged them because of that. That day, 3,000 people died by the sword as God judged his people. Why? Because 49 days earlier, on the 50th day before that, they entered into a blood relationship where they based their relationship with God now on their obedience and with no first chance warning, with no grace period to get used to the new deal, God's wrath got poured out on the community. Well, as you read the rest of the story, Moses goes back up the mountain, he gets new stone tablets and they enter into a six-month building project where they build a tabernacle. In the book of Leviticus now, in Numbers, as you continue to read, God establishes a sacrificial system so that he doesn't have to keep judging his people all the time because of their rebellion. He sets up a sacrificial system so that that judgment can be alleviated every now and again. And after six months, they have silver trumpets, they blow them in the book of Numbers and they're finally about to keep on their journey on toward the promised land things are going to get good are you ready (laughs) they blow the trumpets God's people move and in numbers 11 within three days of traveling guess what they did they complained (laughs) because nothing has changed numbers 11 as a result of their complaining it says that fire came from heaven (laughs) and a whole bunch of them die (laughs) as you keep reading numbers 11 (laughs) They start getting hungry. And do you know what they do when they get hungry? They complain. God sends uh, quail for them. And it says while the quail is still in their teeth, they hit with a plague and people die. So you keep reading uh, numbers, I think it's chapter 11 or 12, I might get my numbers mixed up, no pun intended. Miriam murmurs against Moses. And it says there in Numbers that because Miriam murmurs against Moses, God effectively, bear with me, spits in her face and she got leprosy. It's all there. She gets leprosy. In the next two chapters, 13 and 14, Moses sends 12 spies into Cana. You know the story. Ten come back with a bad report. Two come back with a good report. And the ten that come back with a bad report are struck with a plague and die. 
The people murmur and complain. They go, what are you doing, Moses? What are you doing? How come all this is happening? What are you doing? We can't go into the promised land. And a plague comes that day and thousands of people die because they don't trust God and don't do what he says moving forward. In the next chapter, chapter 15, there's a guy picking up sticks to build a fire for his family. And guess what? It's a Saturday. And he's picking up sticks on a Saturday. And the people find out about this and they grab him and they say, Moses, this guy's picking up sticks. What are we going to do with him? And Moses says, I'm not sure. I'll go into the tent and ask God. He goes into the tent, ask God, what should we do? This guy's picking up sticks on a Saturday to build a fire. And God said, yeah, I know. Stone him to death. The next chapter, there's a guy called Korah. And Korah rebels against Moses and leadership and incites 250 fellow community leaders to grumble against Moses, to grumble against their pastor. Watch out, people. And they grumble against, and they said, we're over this. We're going to go back to Egypt. Moses and Aaron, you guys are done. And that day, God says to Moses and everyone, just reverse back from their tents a little bit. And right before their eyes, Korah and his entire family are swallowed alive. The ground opens up, they're swallowed alive, fire comes from heaven and burns 14,700 people in one day. 250 community leaders, I might be getting my chapters mixed up, I'm trying to do this from memory, die in a day. Why? Because they murmured against their pastor. If we had an earthquake right now, that would not be good timing, would it? <laughs> now, what's going on, people? What's going on? Because God's people have not changed in the slightest. Over here, God is blessing His people, even though they're whinging, whining and complaining. And yet now, all of a sudden, He's cursing them with judgment, pain and death. Is God having a mood swing? Is God having multiple personality disorder? Has God changed? I, the Lord, do not change. And we certainly know his people haven't changed. They're exactly the same. It's just a few months later and they're behaving exactly the same way. The only thing that changed was that here is a mountain. At a mountain, they entered into a different relationship with God. And so on this side of the mountain, they whinge, they whine and they complain and God blesses them and provides for them. Over this side of the mountain, they whinge, they whine and they complain. God opens up the ground, swallows them alive and burns them to death. Over this side of the mountain, they break the Sabbath and God provides food for them the next day. Over this side of the mountain, they break the Sabbath. God says, kill them. Over this side of the mountain, they're worshipping false gods and God gets them out of Egypt, gives them gold and silver and blesses them. On this side of the mountain, they worship false gods Plagues come and people die. God has not changed. His people have not changed. They've just entered into a different relationship with him. A covenant arrangement where their pedigree is now no longer enough to be blessed by God. They now not only need to be born right, they now need to behave right. And if they don't behave right, not only will they not receive the blessing of God, they will receive his curse and his judgment. The thing that was reserved for Abraham's enemies would be now come upon God's own people. It's as if they would be enemies of God because of the arrangement that they were in. 
And this is the story of God's people, quick acceleration now, for about 1,400 years, 1,500 years, all the way through the Old Testament, which is why much of the Old Testament is difficult to read and a little bit depressing. Because God's people have an up and down relationship with God. When they obey, things go well. When they disobey, things go poorly. When they obey, things go well. When they disobey, things go terribly. The prophets come. They say, listen, guys, get your act together. You better behave. You're doing the wrong thing. And they put their ears, ears, uh, fingers in the ears and say, nah, get stuff. We're not going to do that. They disobey God and things just get bad and bad. The kingdom splits down up, up in the north. They have bad king after bad king after bad king until eventually God says, that's it. I'm done with you. Just like I told you through Moses. I'm going to hand you over to devastation, defeat, doom, death and destruction. Enemies come in and God says, I'm writing you a certificate of divorce, Jeremiah chapter 3. You're no longer my people. You have broken my covenant. You have broken my agreement. Down south, things aren't all that good, but at least every now and again they have a good king. And so down south, sometimes they have the blessing of God, sometimes they don't. They have a good king, then a bad king, then a good king, then a good king, and then a bad king, and then a bad king, and a really bad king, and a really bad king. And this is a relationship with God that they have. And the prophets come to them and also prophesy to them, you better get your act together because you're in a covenant with God where he will curse you, he'll do to you what he did to your crazy cousins up north. They don't listen and they get carried into exile. God is not nasty. He's just faithful to the deal that he made and that they made with him. And it's funny because, well, not funny, not ha-ha funny, but it's interesting that it's not until you get to the book of Hebrews or over here. Actually, it was, it's, it's in the Psalms, but you really find out of it in the New Testament where God says, you know what? I don't delight in sacrifices and blood offerings. Those things have never flicked my switch. The law required them, but I never delighted in that thing. And God's people have this relationship with God. It's not that God changed, it's that the relationship with God changed. And thank God, through all the trauma of those Old Testament years, there were still hints of hope that came out. Because the prophets would say, there's a new king coming. There's a new king coming. There's a new government coming. There's a new shepherd coming. There's a new deliverer, Moses, coming. And most importantly, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Isaiah, there is a new covenant coming. A new covenant of new hearts for a new start for my people is on its way. And so we get to Christmas when angels come after 400 years of silence and they say, we've got good news of great joy because today in the town of Bethlehem, a saviour has been born to you. Jesus lives his life, the perfect man, perfect God, For 30 years, for three years of ministry, he acts like Melchizedek. And he shows people what God is like. Through his miraculous acts of power and through moral acts of purity, everything Jesus does reveals the nature of God to us. From his first miracle of turning water into wine to his last miracle, where an enemy, a man who hated him and cut his ear off, uh, got his ear cut off with a sword thanks to Peter, a man who hated Jesus and was out to arrest him and was going to lead to Jesus' beating and betrayal, Jesus reaches down in the dirt and picks up that man's ear and heals a man that hated him. Why? Because the true nature of God is a God who is kind to the ungrateful and kind to the wicked. And Jesus demonstrated the nature of God in his life. John the baptizer at the start of this ministry, we spoke about this yesterday, looks at Jesus coming on the banks of the Jordan and he says, this is the Lamb of God that takes away sin. And so at the cross, as Jesus died, 
He bled for us. And the night before the cross, as you know, he takes the cup, sorry, he takes the cup and he says, this is the blood of a new covenant. You Jewish boys that we're having the Passover with tonight, you understand covenant. We've had covenants before. You understand Moses' covenant. You understand Abraham's covenant. But tonight there is a new covenant where forgiveness of sins is announced to you and he offers his bride a glass of wine. This is a new covenant night. The next day, Jesus is there, hung on a cross, suspended between heaven and earth, bleeding from seven places, like I said yesterday. And there are seven things that Jesus says when he's on the cross. And one of my favourites is this, tetelestai in the Greek, he, it is finished. It is finished. Now what finished? What finished when Jesus said it is finished? Because Jesus, yeah, Jesus' work hadn't finished. He still had lots to do. He still had to rise from the dead and go to heaven and, and, and sprinkle the blood. He still had to come again from the bride and pour out his Holy Spirit. Jesus had a lot more stuff to do. But what had finished? Well, the moment he said that, the ground shook, Christchurch. And something happened in a temple. From heaven to earth, from top to bottom, this incredibly thick curtain that divided the holy place was torn. Jesus in his death announced the end of this whole old covenant era where what qualified you to come into God's presence, what qualified you to enter into the righteousness of God is your obedience or sacrifices on your behalf. Jesus announced the full and complete end of that at the cross when he said, it is finished. One sacrifice for all time, one lamb to rule them all. Amen. But there, as you know, was more to Jesus' ministry than just that. Because John the Baptist said, not only will he be the Lamb of God that takes away sin, he'll also be the one that baptises with the Holy Spirit. And so on the 50th day after Jesus shed his blood, in Acts chapter 2, you know what Pentecost means in Greek? 50. Pentecost is the Greek word. 50th day after, after Passover, the Holy Spirit comes upon his people and a whole new era begins. On the 50th day, after Moses shed blood on the people, on the 50th day, plague came upon God's people. God's curse, wrath and judgment, the fire of God's vengeance came. On the 50th day, after Jesus shed his blood, the fire of God's glory and goodness came. On the 50th day, after Moses shed the blood on the people, the swords of the Levites cut the people to death. On the 50th day, after Jesus shed his blood, Peter preaches and it says the sword of his word pierced their heart. And they said, what must we do to be saved? On the 50th day, after Moses shed the old covenant blood, 3,000 people died. On the 50th day, after Jesus shed his blood, 3,000 people were saved. And a whole new era began where your pedigree and your performance mean nothing all that matters is your position in the perfect person of Jesus because Jesus in case you didn't know has the perfect pedigree he is God himself born of a virgin 
perfect pedigree. In fact, not only the perfect pedigree, he has Abraham's pedigree. Because as Paul would say <laughs> over here in Galatians, he said, you know what? You know who the heir of Abraham really is? I've just been rereading Genesis. And it doesn't say that God said, I'll bless Abraham and his seeds. It says, I'll bless Abraham and his seed. That seed is Jesus. And so if you are in Jesus... Jesus qualifies for Abraham's blessings, so do you. Because you are in the one who qualifies, you are positioned in him. Jesus had the perfect pedigree. Jesus also had the perfect performance because he perfectly obeyed the law on our behalf. And he perfectly took the penalty of the curses on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God. Jesus qualifies for all the blessings of Deuteronomy 28 because he perfectly obeyed. And so when we are positioned in Jesus, we look at those promises and we say all God's promises, no matter how they're made, how many God made, they are yes in Christ. And my job is to say, Amen. And it's not because I've perfectly obeyed. And it's not because I was born into the Hebrew roots or I have Jewish roots. I've done my ancestry.com and oh, thank God I'm only in the line of Abraham. No, it doesn't matter. My pedigree doesn't matter because the gospel is for Samoans. And the gospel is for Khmer. And the gospel is for Indonesians. And the gospel is for Chinese. And the gospel is for Kiwis. And the gospel is for Skippies. And the gospel is for Maori. And the gospel is for Africans. The God, no matter what your pedigree, the gospel is for Indians. Because no matter what your pedigree, God blesses you, not on the basis of your natural history. God blesses you because you are in Jesus Christ and He qualifies for all of those blessings. And so the Bible is one story and it can be understood and told many ways. And this is just one way to tell them and there's so much more I could say. But it's one story with three major epochs of time, three major covenants. And I'm so grateful that we live on this side of the cross in this part of covenant history. Aren't you glad? And aren't you glad that Paul would write to the Galatians and say, don't be stupid. Don't try to go back there, you bunch of twits. That part of the Bible story is important and it's needed and you should read it and it was God and it was right at the time and it's there for all time and eternity. That part of the Bible story is true and by all means, read it and learn from it because these people serve as examples for us. So, so learn from that time. But please understand, that's not the relationship of God with God that you have because the cross has changed everything. A new covenant has been given to you and part of that understanding is learning I rejoice in Jesus. My confidence is in Jesus. I approach the throne of grace with confidence because I am in Him. My confidence is not my family upbringing. My confidence is not how good a Christian I've been this week. As I said yesterday, it doesn't matter how good a Christian you've been this week because Jesus has been the perfect Christian this week and you are in Him. And so you approach God with that level of freedom and confidence, clothed and covered in Christ. Not my pedigree. Not my performance, but my position in Jesus. It's a wonderful story and it's worth telling and it's worth singing again and again and again. Why don't you stand to your feet and we will sing this story today. Dad, we thank you that history is His story. It's the story of Jesus. We thank you for your Word. We thank you that you have been faithful to covenant. And we just declare this morning, you are a covenant-keeping God. We thank you for the agreement that you made 
through Jesus and have offered to all mankind. We are grateful recipients of all Your blessings today. And to Jesus, we say yes. We say thank You, thank You, thank You. Thank You for making obsolete, obsolete this law covenant system that we can step into newness of life, resurrected with the life of God within us. We're so grateful that You came to us in darkness and You showed us a glorious light. We bless You in Jesus' Name.